Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you give me grace. I pray that these are only your words, that I am merely thinking your thoughts after you, but give me special grace as I respond to the satanic church that is the Roman Catholic Church and to all their heresies and all their blasphemies. I pray that you give your people grace to understand what Rome is, what Roman Catholicism is, and that we broke away 500 years ago for a reason. Pray for a movement of the Holy Spirit. We pray that through this, sinners would be saved, the saints would be sanctified. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On October 31st, the year of our Lord, 1517, a German monk named Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on that Wittenberg church door, and that, of course, sparked the Protestant Reformation, which is one of God's greatest works of revival ever. And sometime, I think, beginning shortly thereafter, exactly when I don't know, but good reform pastors began preaching Reformation Day sermons around the same time of year in order to very appropriately celebrate this great work of God. Uh, because I am not a good Reformed pastor, I have to date only preached one Reformation Day sermon, and that is because I was asked to speak at a conference on the five solas that particular year. This was some time ago when I chose sola scriptura, and so I delivered what I prepared for them to you also. I'm being facetious in reality. The reason I don't do this every year is reason I don't do right-to-life sermons typically. Either I preach these things consistently, and when you're talking about Reformation doctrine, that comes every single week to you, so I don't feel the need to separate time for it specifically, generally. This year, however, there is something concerning the Reformation that I believe strongly needs to be said by me and needs to be heard by all of you. And this is in direct response to a metastasizing ungodly ecumenicalism that would have orthodox Christianity growing roots right back into what the reformers pulled us out of half a millennia ago. So for such a time as this, I offer to you a reminder of lessons that our spiritual predecessors learned through great suffering and sacrifice and that we indeed need to be reminded of because we indeed have forgotten these. Protestants everywhere are coalescing together with the Roman Catholic Church and its apparatchiks 
And we're doing this because we are so enamored with the paint job, so to speak, and so taken with the spoiler that we don't bother to look under the hood or to use another analogy, and I think one even more fitting, a prostitute on the street corner looks real good to the carnal onlooker. And so he pushes from his mind the fact that she is full of disease and that union with her is only going to bring death, and he gives way to what feels right. And to relate the purchase of a whore metaphorically to our relationship with the papists, as long as their religious aesthetic is attractive enough to the eye, we will take her into our bed, and in doing so, we will receive into our spiritual members the due penalty of our error. And as to the Roman Catholic religious aesthetic, if I'm being honest, and I must be, that pig wears its lipstick well. Many Roman Catholic conservatives and popular conservative pundits say many right things about God, right things about the world that he created, right things about political systems and the body politic and how we should respond within these frameworks. And this is so because they share many of the same pillars of our worldview. And so we think maybe the reformers were too severe all those centuries ago. And to be clear, Luther was indeed severe. The man was, in fact, a brute. And you may already know that he said things in response to Rome and others that were sinful and behaved in ways at times that actually were ungodly. And not just in the way that we all do, because we're all sinners, and so we all sin. But he did these things, some of which were egregious, acting in the capacity of the most public-facing, legitimate representative of Christ on planet Earth at the time. And to make this case even more damning, he personally and in writing acknowledged this of himself. Quote, I have written a third sort of book against some private and, as they say, distinguished individuals, those namely who strive to preserve the Roman tyranny and to destroy the godliness taught by me. Against these things, I confess, I have been more violent than my religion or profession demands. But he continues with, but then I don't set myself up as a saint Neither am I disputing about my life, meaning that he's not disputing that he's a great sinner who has sinned greatly. So that kind of cuts the ad hominem attacks off at the knees. But he says, I am arguing about the teaching of Christ. And he says further, it is not proper for me to retract these works that he's written because by this retraction it would again happen that tyranny and godlessness would, with my patronage, rule and rage among the people of God more violently than ever before. But perhaps Luther was wrong on all accounts. The severity with which he spoke, the necessity of total separation from Roman Catholicism on the basis that she was no longer Christ's true church, and also with respect to his unwillingness to retract even the violent things that he said. Perhaps John Calvin was also wrong to conclude the following as well. Referring to the worship of Rome in the 16th century, he said the whole form of divine worship in general use in the present day is nothing but mere corruption. And so maybe Rome was doing the world a service when they murdered, as they did, Calvin's seminary graduates. Maybe John Knox was wrong when he called their practices ungodly, which is about the most charitable thing that I could find from John Knox on this subject. And maybe the heirs of the Reformers' theology were all wrong too. This would include the Puritans, the great revivalists of the 18th century, and me, because not only is my first name derivative of St. Augustine, so is my understanding of justification, which I share in common with both Luther and Calvin, who were preachers in the Augustine tradition. Perhaps we are all wrong. Or 
perhaps we have become wrong now because Rome has changed, and so our response to her must change. Or here's a third option. Maybe the pressing concerns of the day require uncomfortable alliances to be made that were previously rightly considered verboten. But now these alliances have become essential to our very survival. For Protestants, these are the questions of our day. Whether they're stated or simply implied, they are, in fact, being asked and they are being answered. But problematically, these questions are being asked and answered under duress, and that duress takes the form of Uncle Sam wanting to mutilate and murder our children, the evil one sending his sodomites into libraries and schools to gyrate in front of children, our every basic right as human beings being very recently and egregiously violated, and we have knowledge that they are poised to do it again and chomping at the bit to do so. Also daily, the children of Satan incite riots and wars. They deliberately and openly persecute anybody who resembles a Christian, and I could go on in this vein for some time. But all to say we're hard-pressed at the present, and looking into the future isn't any better. In fact, it is worse. It is like looking into the barrel of a loaded gun and waiting for the person that's holding that gun to pull the trigger. And conditions like these seldom make for good decisions. Well, such a context produces panic much more naturally than it does lend itself to prudence. And one of these bad, non-prudential decisions resulting from our panic is reconsidering Rome, considering now making her an ally as they say, well, you know, at least Roman Catholics don't support so-called gender reassignment surgeries or abortion or drag queen story hour. So many are pro-actual human rights instead of the made-up kind about boys being girls and girls being boys. Many are invested in preserving good and moral aspects of our culture. They're even Trinitarians. They claim the name of Jesus. They carry Bibles like us, and there are many more positive elements and outcomes of their religion than to consider than just these. And so they are an attractive refuge in a time of storm. But that is only true if you fundamentally misapprehend them and the nature of the storm, both of which I trust we will understand before we're through here this afternoon so that we are not seduced by what is still very much Satan's church and in being seduced, trample on the blood of Christ and the blood of our brethren that the papacy has so enthusiastically shed over the course of the centuries. And we will consider this issue through the lens of 2 Corinthians 6.14 through 7.1. Turn there with me now, if you would. I'm going to exegete Paul's words, and then after we will apply them to the relationship that we Protestants have to the Roman Catholic Church as well as the relationship that we as individuals have with individual Roman Catholics, which is a different matter, and we will treat it as such. But we'll begin by reading all of our text, starting again in 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ with Belial, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. 7.1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh, and spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 
Now, starting here, let me address first the common use of this passage, or the most common at least, because I think you're probably all thinking about it anyhow, and so I don't want your thoughts to linger on this and become distractions. So verse 14's, do not be bound together with unbelievers, and the NASB is better known by its rendering in other translations, which is, do not be unequally yoked. And what is the primary context in which that concept is invoked? Marriage, a union between a man and a woman. If you've ever gone to a Christian marriage seminar, likely this was at the very center of the argument. Now, I'm not saying that's not a good application. It is a good application, but you need to understand that it's not the primary application. Marriage between a man and a woman is not primarily in view here. False teachers are. Just prior to our text, in the same chapter, Paul gives the marks of true ministers and true ministries. And he also references the slander of his detractors, which are the false teachers who seek to supplant him so that their lies will win out and uh, the gospel will be cast aside. Starting back in verse 3, speaking of himself and his ministry partners, he says, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, skipping ahead to verse 8, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true. So he has liars that are calling him a liar, and they are again doing this in order to discredit Christ's gospel as given through him. In fact, the Corinthian epistles function as apologetics in defense of Paul's ministry, much more than that, but not less than that. And Paul's not defending his ministry for his own sake, but for the sake of Christ's name, because if he gets discredited, so will the message that he has been giving. And he'll again defend his authority in chapter 10 directly, 2 Corinthians 10, 7 through 11. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ, let him consider this again within himself, just that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in words by letters when absent, such persons we also are indeed when present. So we talk the talk, and as you will find out, if you keep smearing us behind our backs, we also walk the walk, and we will do so as it pertains to you when we get there. On these sowers of discord and teachers of false doctrine they are spoken of are directly referenced in the next chapter, 2 Corinthians 11. We'll start back in verse 2 so that you can hear Paul's heartbeat and understand what's motivating him, so not just the issue, but the reason why he is ultimately addressing it. He says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles, but even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. And skipping ahead to verse 12. But what I am doing, I will continue to do, so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. 
For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. You know, upon reading that, I guess I must recant my previous position on the whole matter of being unequally yoked. Turns out that it is, in fact, a direct reference to marriage, just not of the merely human kind. This is about the union between Christ and his bride. And in Corinth, his bride was becoming less and less faithful to him because of the influence of those teachers who falsely claimed the name of Christ and taught damnable things in that name. And the false teaching that they're dealing with occupies two main categories which were being mashed together to make for very strange bedfellows. And the one was Jewish legalism. So think about the issue of the meat that was previously sacrificed to idols. That's why that became an issue. It's not a pagan perspective. That was a Jewish perspective. Second, though, you have an infusion of practices linked to temple prostitution in worship of Aphrodite. And that, of course, is paganism. And they continued to compromise in this area, and that's quite evident in these epistles. Example, you belong to Christ, so stop joining yourself to whores, as he says, essentially, in 1 Corinthians 6. So when Paul says in verse 17, quoting from Isaiah 52:11, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, this is what he is calling them to separate from, to come out from, a syncretistic, synergistic cocktail of legalism and mysticism, which incidentally also describes the Roman Catholic Church extremely well, as we will get to later. But consider with me now the cause and necessity of their avoidance of such false teachers, which is illustrated primarily through the concept of being unequally yoked, which occurs again in verse 14. And with all due respect to my beloved Nasby, that is the preferred rendering, because Paul is drawing this from Deuteronomy 22.10, which says, uh, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. That is the mandate of Moses. Now, there were two reasons for that Deuteronomic command, and one was spiritual and the other was practical, but as they are used by Paul, even uh, the practical implications have spiritual applications as well. And because the practical reason is quickly understood, we will start there. From the ox to the donkey, there was quite a difference in size and strength. Okay, so Whatever you want to pull, I would assume you would want to pull it in a straight line. You're not going to be able to pull it in a straight line if you have that difference in strength from one animal to the next and size. You're going to go around in circles. You remember Penile a few years ago? For those of you that were there, do you remember the races with the boats? And I said we should pretend to be conquistadors and um, we should be leading our own armadas, and whoever gets to the appointed shore first will get to conquer the indigenous people, and our progeny will rule there for a thousand years. Well, not to brag, but my armada won, and we won handily because our opponents were unequally yoked. One side of their boat was actually rowing, the other side not so much, so they ended up in a shore, but it was not the right shore, and they were not able to disembark because it was... Uh, bunch of weeds. That's the idea. And further contributing to the unequal nature of this yoking together, there is also the fact that the ox was a clean animal while the donkey was unclean. And that is clearly Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 6. 
couldn't have clean animals with unclean. You can't have, in verse 14, the righteous alongside the lawless. You can't have darkness fellowshipping with light, as verse 14 also states. These concepts are antithetical. In order for the one to exist, it must drive out the other. But they both cannot, as the bumper sticker says, coexist. This is why one soul's defined by light and righteousness, and that cannot be bound together with another soul defined by darkness and lawlessness. Animals were yoked together. They were set on an established path for a certain task. That would be to plow a line in a field, for example. If the one animal, by its nature, speaking anthropomorphically, wanted to sow seeds in order to grow food and to sustain life, was altruistic, was righteous, while the other wanted to drag his hooves every which way he went, thus obscuring the previous lines drug by the plow, then the righteous purpose for which they were yoked together in the first place would go unfulfilled. You've got to have like creatures yoked together because the pursuit of a common task requires a common kind. So when you're talking in terms of ministry, you cannot have ministry partners that have just been born with those who have been born again. They must all have been born again. Cannot have Christian and false Christian professor working toward the same end because they will not work towards the same end. They are not of the same nature. Believers, by our nature, seek life and spiritual life chiefly through the ministry of the gospel. While unbelievers destroy, even and often especially those unbelievers that falsely profess faith in Jesus and contrary to popular belief, if you mix believer and unbeliever, it is not the believer that's typically going to bring the unbeliever up. It goes the other way. And this is true because unbelievers are dead in their trespasses and sins. And their idols, as referenced in verse 16, are dead too. Whereas the believer is very much alive, and in fact we are, verse 16 also, the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And understand that this is, two on, this is true on two fronts. Okay, if you are a Christian, this is true of you specifically as an individual. It is also true of we as Christians, corporately. We, collectively, are the temple of God. And the latter actually is the one being referenced here. We are alive. And the life in us was put there by God. And that life is, in fact, the life of God. And as the Israelites were not permitted to handle the dead Per Mosaic law, we are not allowed to partner with the dead in ministry. Now, do you remember that question that was asked of Mary Magdalene and the other women outside of Jesus' vacated tomb by the angel? That question that answered so much more than it did ask? Why do you seek the living among the dead? Well, the answer for them was that they thought that Jesus was dead. They did not realize that he had once more become living. Same question, though, should be posed to Protestants with Roman Catholics and other gospel-denying groups as well. Why do you look for the living among the dead? The gospel gives life. They have no gospel. Therefore, they have no life. And as it pertains to our relationship with Roman Catholicism, it is as simple as this. When we come out from their midst and separate, we win People of God have all the power in this dynamic because all power belongs to God. As Samson had great divine power, so do we. But recall that Samson gave his power away to the Philistine women. 
And so we must learn from his example. We will keep our power if we avoid fellowship with modern-day Philistines, who, although I cannot attest to the status of their physical circumcision, I can certainly tell you they are not circumcised of the heart. Yet not born again. And if we do learn from Samson's testimony, we will then obey Paul's command and have in his words no partnership with them. Paul, in making this point, establishes it through the commands of the Old Covenant. Look again to verses 16 through 18, and we'll work our way through these in order to demonstrate this. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That is a quotation of Exodus 29:45. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And that's Isaiah 52, 11. I'll also say that the context there is the suffering servant uh, accomplishing the purification of his people, same suffering servant that has separated us and to whom we are commanded to remain separated unto. Going on, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. That is a reference to a number of different references. Concept is pervasive in the Old Testament texts. Of course, Jews were forbidden from even laying hands on anything that God had deemed unclean. And that's what that's pointing back to. Finally, verse 18, And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty, and that is from 2 Samuel 7, 14. These were the commands of God given to ancient Israel, given to them primarily through Moses. And it is worth asking, how'd they do with that? Perhaps even more importantly, what was the result of either their obedience or their disobedience? Well, First, when it came to separation unto holiness, you might say that there was some room for improvement. They struggled. Consider, say, the fornication with the golden calf. They attempted a synergy of worship to Yahweh and worship to the Egyptian gods, and this resulted in the sons of Levi, per the commands of Moses, slaughtering the offending number, 3,000 men, pulling out their swords and cutting them all down. There was also that time when they rebelled against God in order to serve Baal of Peor at Shittim, and they fornicated again, and again they were run through by Moses and company, including Phinehas. Then there's the book of Judges. I'm not going to go through all that. Just trust me, it was a mess. I will point out one incident, though, in Judges 19, when the tribe of Benjamin became so completely wicked, their line was almost completely wiped out from the face of the earth, and the only reason that God stayed his hand at all was to honor the covenant he had made with the nation of Israel. But they had roving bands of sodomite marauders going around and gang-raping people. And you can think about the desecration of the temple under Manasseh that resulted from idolatry. You can think of, as was raised last week, the fact that by the time you get to Nehemiah, they are still marrying foreign women. And that's directly germane to our study now because the issue with foreign women wasn't actually about the fact that the women were foreign. Okay, Ruth was a Moabitess. And then she forsook all the religions of her forefathers and she became an Israelite. Okay, she left all of that behind. God wasn't xenophobic, to use a stupid political buzz term from our day. The issue with foreign women was that they brought their foreign gods with them. 
Their people did not become or were not God's people. The people that they came from remained their people and those gods came with them. But after all this and so much more like it, God finally got to the point where he said, I want a divorce. And so he wrote one and he stopped speaking to them for 400 years until John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was, of course, the near forerunner of Jesus. And then Jesus came and he said things like this. Matthew 8, 11 through 12, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sons of the kingdom gone. Gentiles brought in. So again, the calls to be holy were not well practiced. People fell into sin again and again because the sins that God said they could not handle being around and managed to remain holy, they handled anyways, and God who was always true was proven true again and again. But I will say at this point that I have it on supposedly good authority that we needn't worry about separation unto holiness in the way that they had to because we are modern and far more intellectual. We can, spiritually speaking, heap hot coals into our laps and not be burnt. Now, of course, that's moronic. That's also a very common way of thinking. My question, though, to those who do think that way is, what is it exactly about the current state of the visible church that would lead you to the conclusion that we can handle those relationships that they could not handle? Let's take inventory for a second of our situation. I don't say the church universal bride of Christ is not a whore. She is what she is supposed to be. I'm talking about the visible church. Okay, what's the state of the modern visible church? Well, we have discarded the Old Testament. God's law, what's a God's law? Who cares anyways? And then we have also done effectively the same to the New Testament. It's remarkable how fast denying God's law became denying the words of Paul and then became red-letter Christianity and even red-letter Christianity doesn't honor the red letters. Not even close. We are often licentious and that owes back to rejecting the law of God and throwing out the Old Testament although that same morality is repeated in the New Testament becomes the basis for Paul's morality and everybody else's. We also have the most biblically illiterate children in the history of American Christian parents. They are not going to obey what they do not know, and they do not know anything, really, because they have been catechized into nothing. No, that's not true. They've been catechized into the deep things of Satan because we allow them to fill their hearts and minds with these things via social media. We also send our children to satanic temples known as government schools because we treat Daniel's captivity to the Babylonians as though that was a prescriptive text. We also don't exegete. We just emote. We eisegete our emotions into the text. That is the interpretive lens. So it's like a romance novel instead of God's truth. We wouldn't know Christ-honoring worship if it physically assaulted us. That's why if you go into most churches, they resemble circuses more than they do anything from the New Testament church. We have more faith in politicians than we do in Christ. We have more investment in politics than we do in Christ's church. Some of us don't know what marriage is or how to tell the difference between a boy and a girl. As I say that, though, that's not actually accurate. We know because everybody knows we just don't have the spine 
to say it. And then we say things like, well, Jesus wasn't offensive like that because, again, we haven't actually read the Bible, so we wouldn't know that he was, in fact, so offensive that they murdered him after three years. We're at the point where mainline denominations now are allowing sodomites to occupy their pulpits. Or in the name of diversity, some purple-haired lesbians are sprinkled in there too. Moses would absolutely have had the Levites pull out their swords for this. He would absolutely have had these people cut down. And he would have been right to do so. We are not smarter. We are not more sophisticated. Or if we are more sophisticated, it is only that we realize that an actual golden calf and naming him Yahweh and then worshiping him through orgies is a little bit too on brand for our idolatry. And so we are more subtle. Instead, we do things like pretend that whitewashed tombs don't have dead men's bones inside of them. And so we handle the dead and we have become dead ourselves. And on that note, let us take a tour of the grand demonic mausoleum known as the Roman Catholic Church so that we can start to settle the issue that we began with and determine whether the reformers and the heirs of their theology were right or just a little high-strung. And for this, I need to recognize CARM.org. If you are not familiar with this resource, you should become familiar with it. Uh, this information was compiled by them. It is direct quotations, though, from the Roman Catholic Church, from their catechisms and from the Council of Trent, but none of this is outdated. All of this information I have uh, in my library, on my shelves, but I am very grateful to them for having put it together so that I just needed to edit it. But we are going to go through their doctrine as defined by them, and I will respond to these as we go. One of the things that I'm going to continue to say is CCC, page such and such. CCC stands for Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church or Catechism of the Catholic Church. So again, these are their doctrines defined by them in the language that was determined by them. This is not me. I'll give my commentary when I say end quote, but this is them. And the last point before we embark upon this journey, this is going to be lengthy. Okay, you need to understand these things. And I also want you to have this as a reference moving forward. So if somebody asks you, why are you uh, so ill-disposed toward the so-called Holy Roman Catholic Church, you can take them to this, share this sermon with them if you want. In the future, as we continue to bring people in, I want this to be a reference point for them as well. Also understand that this is not going to cover nearly all of the issues. Okay, an Amazon of trees could not hold all of the heresies of the Roman Catholic Church in book form. But first, the Catholic Church, meaning big C, Roman Catholic, is the one true church. CCC 2105. The duty of offering God genuine worship concerns both man individually and socially. It requires them to make known the worship of the one true religion which subsists, meaning subsists entirely in the Catholic, Big C, and Apostolic Church. Now, Scripture knows nothing of the Holy Roman Catholic Church. It was not prophesied that it would come and that it would subsume all that is actually legitimately Christian. 
The church is not defined by an ecclesiastical system or structure in particular. It is an organism comprised of those who have repented and believed and have done so in keeping with biblical theology proper and Christology certainly. Okay, It is a spiritual organism. You enter it by faith and repentance. You do not require that stamp from any particular church. God never gave that to anybody But according to them, if you don't belong to them, you don't belong to Christ at all. Next, only the Roman Catholic Church has the authority to interpret Scripture. CCC 100. Task of interpreting the Word of God authentically has been entrusted solely to the magisterium of the Church, that is, to the Pope and to the bishops in communion with him, end quote. And this, by the way, makes possible all the heresies that come next. If it all has to be filtered through that lens, they can make it whatever they want. This is what is called a dual-source view, as opposed to our single-source view, which is sola scriptura, or scripture alone. And as I have said before, any kind of dual-source view is a mere pretension, because one must rule over the other practically. You will not have two chiefs. You will only have one. And that one is church tradition, church authority. Next, the Pope is the head of the church and has the authority of Christ. CCC 2034, the Roman pontiff and the bishops are authentic teachers, that is, teachers endowed with the authority of Christ who preach the faith to the people entrusted to them, the faith to be believed and put into practice. The ordinary and universal magisterium of the Pope and the bishops in communion with him teach the faithful the truth to believe, the charity to practice, the beatitude to hope for. We have seen the opposite of that in the book of Acts. All authority belonged to the Word. It did not belong to the preacher. It did not belong to the popes. It did not belong to the magisterium. He who preached the Word and handled it accurately had the authority of Christ. Furthermore, Paul himself said that even if he or another apostle taught another gospel, they should be accursed. So how is it that the seat of absolute authority becomes the Roman pontiff? Next, the Roman Catholic Church is necessary for salvation. CCC, page 846. How are we to understand this affirmation often repeated by the church fathers? Reformulated positively, it means that all salvation comes from Christ the head through the church, which is his body, meaning them. Basing itself on scripture and tradition, the council teaches that the church, a pilgrim now on earth, is necessary for salvation. The one Christ is the mediator and the way of salvation. They don't believe that, as you'll see later. He is presented to us in his body, which is the church. He himself explicitly asserted the necessity of faith and baptism and thereby affirmed at the same time the necessity of the church, which men enter through baptism as a door. Hence, they could not be saved who, knowing that the Catholic church was founded as necessary by God through Christ, would refuse either to enter it or to remain in it. And yet there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved but the name of Jesus, according to the scriptures, and that would include the name of the unholy Roman Catholic Church. Furthermore, note there the requirement of baptism for salvation. And think back on the household of Cornelius. Think of the thief on the cross. Next, sacred tradition is equal to scripture. CCC 82, the church to whom the transmission and interpretation of Revelation are entrusted does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone, 
Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate equipped for how many good works? All of them. Next, forgiveness of sins slash salvation is by faith and works. CCC 2036, the specific precepts of the natural law because their observance demanded by the creator is necessary for salvation. That is not law-keeping in keeping with the testimony of Jesus consistent with a new nature. That is law-keeping unto salvation. CCC 2068, so that all men may attain salvation through faith, baptism, and the observance of the commandments. Sanctification is doing. Salvation is done. And the conflation of those two is damning. It's a gentleman by the name of N.T. Wright. He came on the scene a little while ago with new perspectives on Paul and then we read that new perspective on Paul and we said, wait a minute, this just sounds like regular old Roman Catholicism on justification by works. Indeed it was. Next, grace can be merited. CCC 2027, moved by the Holy Spirit, we can merit for ourselves and for others all the graces needed to attain eternal life as well as necessary temporal goods. That is an insane contradiction, obviously, because saving grace is all of God. That's what makes it grace. Next, consider that the merit of Mary and the saints can be applied to Catholics and others. CCC 1477, this treasury includes as well the prayers and good works of the Blessed Virgin Mary. They are truly immense, unfathomable, and even pristine, meaning perfect in their value before God. In the treasury too are the prayers and good works of all the saints, all those who have followed in the footsteps of Christ the Lord and by his grace have made their lives holy and carried out the mission in the unity of the mystical body. Remember that part about Christ ever living to make intercession for you? Do you remember Mary being included in that intercession? Nope. Next, penance is necessary for salvation. And I'll say here at this point, the list of things that you need to do to save yourself is ever-growing. CCC 980. Sacrament of penance is necessary for salvation for those who have fallen after baptism, just as baptism is necessary for salvation for those who have not yet been reborn. Yet, John 6, 26 through 29, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. That is the entire work of God unto salvation. And how is that believing accomplished? Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that you would walk in them. Next, purgatory. CCC 1031. Church gives the name purgatory to this final purification of the elect, which is a strange concept for them to be raising. Nevertheless, which is entirely going on different from the punishment of the damned, 
The church formulated her doctrine of faith on purgatory, especially at the councils of Florence and Trent. The tradition of the church by reference to certain texts of scripture speaks of a cleansing fire, and just a general reference to cleansing fire is apparently enough to define a whole separate part of existence wherein the so-called Christian continues to be purified because the work of Christ was not sufficient. And because they are cruel hostage takers of your family members' souls, CCC 1475, in the communion of saints, a perennial link of charity exists between the faithful who have already reached their heavenly home, those who are expiating their sins in purgatory, to whom is ascribed the work of expiation of sins. Christ. Those who are expiating their sins in purgatory and those who are still pilgrims on earth, between them there is too an abundant exchange of all good things. In this wonderful exchange, it's wonderful, the holiness of the one profits others well beyond the harm that the sin of the one could cause others and thus recourse to the communion of saints lets the entire contrite sinner be more promptly and efficaciously purified of the punishments for sin. And because they are a hostage taker and every hostage requires a ransom, next we have indulgences. CCC 1498, through indulgences, the faithful can obtain the remission of temporal punishment resulting from sin for themselves and also for the souls in purgatory. CCC 1472, on the other hand, every sin, even venial, non-moral, meaning you can be forgiven, entails an unhealthy attachment to creatures, which must be purified either here on earth or after death in the state called purgatory. This purification frees one from what is called the temporal punishment of sin. Next, Marius Mediatrix, CCC 969, which we already touched on this a little bit, but here's an explicit statement. Therefore, the Blessed Mary is invoked in the church under the titles of advocate, helper, benefactress, and mediatrix, meaning co-mediatrix, as in there is but one mediator between man and God, the man, Jesus Christ. She is alongside of him, performing that work with him. Next, Mary brings us the gifts of eternal salvation, CCC 969, taken up to heaven. She did not lay aside this saving office, but by her manifold intercession continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation, end quote. Next, Mary delivers souls from death, CCC 966. You, Mary, conceive the living God, and by your prayers will deliver our souls from death. Next, Mary's prayers to the saints, CCC 2677. By asking Mary to pray for us, we acknowledge ourselves to be poor sinners, and we address ourselves to the Mother of Mercy, the All-Holy One. We give ourselves over to her now in the today of our lives, and our trust broadens further already at the present moment to surrender the hour of our death wholly to her care. Next, the communion elements become the actual body and blood of Christ. This is the doctrine of transubstantiation, and it is an aspect of the Roman Catholic Eucharist, which itself is so rife with blasphemies that multiple sermons could be devoted to addressing simply it. But just briefly, CCC 1374, in the most blessed sacrament of the Eucharist, the body and blood, together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore the whole Christ is truly, really, and substantially contained. So does cannibalism also. What this means is that Christ is being re-sacrificed over and over and over again, literally. Because enough is never enough, not even for God. Next, their priests are other Christs. 
when they are installed as priests, they go through a ceremony where this is confirmed. And so that you understand exactly what they mean by this, here is Pope Pius XI on the subject. First, this is how one should regard us. This quote, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. 1 Corinthians 4.1, that would be fine. But the priest is the minister of Christ as instrument, that is to say, in the hands of the divine Redeemer. He continues the work of the redemption in all its world-embracing universality and divine efficacy, that work that wrought so marvelous a transformation in the world. Thus the priest, as is said with good reason, is indeed another Christ, for in some way he is himself a continuation of Christ. As the Father has sent me, I also send you, is spoken to the priest. And hence the priest, like Christ, continues to give glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men of good will. Now that may not sound, and certainly at certain parts, all that bad. But here's the thing about Roman Catholic doctrine over the ages. It grows. It changes. It gets filled in more and more. And here is St. John Eudes on the subject, who, as I recall, is the patron saint of missionaries. He has founded a number of seminaries. He is considered their greatest preacher of the early 17th century, and great revival is attributed to him. And I don't know that I have ever heard somebody pack more damnable heresies and blasphemies into a couple paragraphs than what I'm about to read to you now, but this is his perspective. Quote, a holy priest is a savior and another Christ, taking the master's place on earth, representing him, clothed with his authority, acting in his name, adorned with his qualifications, exercising his judgment on earth in the tribunal of penance. He is consecrated to exercise the highest functions Christ ever performed on earth to continue the work of salvation in imitation of his Redeemer. He gives himself mind, heart, affection, strength, time, all for God. He is ever ready to sacrifice his very blood and even life itself to procure the salvation of others, particularly those of his own flock. He goes on, he is a God living and walking on earth, a God by grace and by participation. Well, at least I will say that God there has a little g. Clothed with the perfections and attributes of God, namely his divine authority, power, justice, mercy, charity, benignity, purity, and holiness. He is a God delegated to carry on God's noblest works, the priestly and pastoral duties, as great Saint Dionysius said, the most divine of all divine things is to cooperate with God in the salvation of souls. Saint Gregory Nazianzen asserts that the priest is a God who makes God's deus deus Ephesians, that is, Christians who are given the name of God's in sacred scripture. And by the way, do you know why we Protestants have pastors but we no longer have priests? You know what a pastor does? pastor actually fulfills a role not dissimilar to that of the old covenant um, prophet, which even then was mostly just preaching to people things already revealed by God. So if you think of um, prophet and priest in terms of a circle, each comprises one half. And so the, the prophet would take the word of God from God, and he would come around, and he would give that to the people, taking from God, giving to the people. Priest picks up over here. Priest takes from the people, and he gives to God. 
He was like them. He was drawn from among the people. He was of the same substance. And he would take their sins and he would bring those before God that the people might receive, in that instance, temporal forgiveness, but in the instance of Christ, eternal forgiveness. Why do we no longer have priests? Because he has taken all of it. Why do they still have priests? Because they don't believe that he has. Finally, here is the matter that was right at the heart of the Reformation, which is justification. And this was drafted in the middle of the 16th century in response to the Reformers, but it very much remains in Catholic doctrine to this day. Council of Trent, Canons on Justification, Canon number 9. Quote, If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified, faith alone, in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining of the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. So all you who believe in faith alone in Christ alone, you are cursed to eternal hell by the Roman Catholic Church. That's what that means. So in summary, their pope is an antichrist, their priests are all blasphemers, their nuns are married to Satan, and if they were honest, they would take down all of the many crosses that adorn their pagan temples and turn them upside down because at least that would be honest. This religion is not Christian. It is the religion of Belial, of verse 15, which is an ancient name for Satan, which means worthless one. And going back to that situation in Judges 19, that marauding band of sodomite gang rapists were called the same thing. That is what Satan is. That is what the church that goes by the name Holy Roman Catholic Church is. Now, if you are wondering what spurred this sermon specifically, I will tell you because I think you'll benefit from knowing this. I started to recognize the need for something like this some time ago, and there were two events that led me to it. First off, there was a movie against transgenderism, a very, very famous movie. If I gave you the name, you would know this was produced by an avowed Roman Catholic. And I like this movie. Actually, I haven't seen it all. I've seen bits and pieces, and the bits and pieces that I have seen have been very good. I might even recommend it to you. But what I found very distressing was the commentary coming from a certain group of post-millennialists about it. And they were very offended that the gentleman, again, an avowed Roman Catholic who knows well Roman Catholic doctrine, they were offended that he did not give the gospel in it. And I thought to myself, I'm not offended that he didn't give the gospel in it. I think I'm offended that you're offended that he didn't give the gospel in it because of the implications of you being offended by that. Now, in a general sense, I'm offended that everybody doesn't give the gospel because God made men's mouths and the highest purpose of that design is to proclaim his greatness and that is done nowhere better than it is done with the gospel. But that's not the sense in which they meant. They meant this brother in Christ, this professing brother, needs to give the gospel. He's not a brother. And so on that level, I'm not offended that he didn't give the gospel for the same reason that I'm not offended that a Buddhist didn't give the gospel. A Hindu didn't give the gospel. They're not going to give what they don't have. They are not our brethren. Then a little while later, I was listening to something else. 
And the main host of this was a Protestant, and I believe a genuine Christian. I've listened to enough of his stuff to believe that. But he very much accepts Roman Catholics as brethren. And he has a Roman Catholic co-host. And he said, you know, if it weren't for the fact that they're castrating little boys and chopping the breasts off of little girls, we might resume this Protestant-Catholic debate. This might be more relevant, but because we have this more pressing concern, we will deal with this fight and then the fight between us. Think about that, though. Think about what happens to a person who comes to the faith who was made a eunuch in this life. Daniel was likely made a eunuch in this life as a result of his captivity. Don't know for sure, but does Daniel remain a eunuch forevermore? Or is Daniel remade? Does Daniel regain that? And more importantly, Daniel's soul is kept. The Ethiopian eunuch, does the Ethiopian eunuch remain a eunuch forevermore? Or is he not granted that back, that and so much more? So then, thinking beyond merely this life, being mutilated in your flesh as horrific as it is, and this church has spoken against that clearly, and forcefully, as awful as that is in the scope of eternity, it is but a brief glimpse. It is a temporary condition. Losing your souls, not. And that is what the Roman Catholic Church takes. It'll leave your body intact, but it'll steal your eternity. And the last gentleman also raised another point worth mentioning. He read on air, which, I mean, at least he had the courage to do this, he read rebukes from Protestants, like me, except ones that would actually take the time to do something like this, which are unlike me, but they were rebuking him for his inclusion of papists into Christ's kingdom. And in a very exercised way, he said, you know what I, I, I want to say to these people? I want to say that we were all Catholics. Don't you realize that, that we all come out of the Roman Catholic Church? There's a little bit of a problem with that, though, because the Roman Catholic Church at present is not the Roman Catholic Church as it has always been, is it? And it seems to me that they made a little bit of a shift at the Council of Trent when they officially canonized that all people who believe in salvation by faith alone like me are accursed to eternal hell. Seems to me like that was a bit of a turning point. Besides, I don't actually consent to the point that we were all Catholics. There were a couple movements that broke away, but the point is true enough that I would more or less agree with it, and wouldn't put up much of a fuss. But at Trent, they officially became a church of Satan. And so to say that those who came out before that uh, are now evidence that all still come from that and that we should pay honor to them, no. Now before we part, there are a couple of points that I want to make clear to you beyond what I've said. First, those who profess to be Roman Catholics are not the same as the Roman Catholic Church, and therefore you should not generally respond to them as I have just responded to their satanic church. Most of the Roman Catholics that you're going to deal with do not actually know the things that I just delivered to you. Okay? They're not actually aware of that. One of the reasons why this is recorded, and you can show them, and I hope that you do, one of the examples of this that we used to deal with as Protestant preachers and as preachers who vociferously 
professed on the street justification by faith is we'd have people come up to us and they'd say, I'm Roman Catholic, go to a Roman Catholic church, and I just want to thank you for what you're doing. Most of the time, because I actually am a nice guy, believe it or not, I don't preach like one, but I am one. I would just receive that graciously and say, well, thank you. Every once in a while, though, I did actually say, you know what, can you pull up on your phone, Councilor Trent, and I'd give him the exact place. I said, I really appreciate the fact that you are telling me, thank you for doing what I am doing, but you should know that your church condemns me to eternal destruction for what I am doing and for the message that I am giving. I understand also with this that the Roman Catholic Church puts on a master class when it comes to obfuscation. Okay? Such that even a lot of their own members, again, don't actually know what they teach. 2 Corinthians 11.14 is fulfilled by nobody better than it is by them. Satan comes as an angel of light. For all those points that I gave you, they have explanations that make the thing that they said not actually the thing that they said. Sometimes they're honest, most of the time they are not. They are lies stacked upon lies stacked upon lies. And the question that always comes up is, can a Roman Catholic be a Christian? That's very different than asking me, is the Roman Catholic Church Christian? The answer to that question is clearly no. But as far as the second question, yes. As a percentage matter, do I think there are a lot? No. As hard numbers go, yeah, I think there are a lot. Why do I think that? What is the power of God unto salvation? What is it? The gospel. Do these people have Bibles? Yes. What is in the Bible? The gospel. So wherever you have the Word of God in that volume, you will have Christians. That is a fact. Now, would I accept the testimony of a person who says they have come to faith and they've been in the Roman Catholic Church for 10 years after that? No, I, I, would, I would cast serious doubt upon that sort of a profession. How it is that you uh, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God and you daily go into that museum of idolatry I couldn't imagine. But can you have somebody there for a short while? Sure. Who's turned around, who doesn't understand these things, who becomes genuinely converted? Yes. But I do believe that the Lord will lead them out as they are brought into greater and greater truth. And I have known many that have been. That have gotten converted through their own readings and they track towards Protestant preachers listening online, but they're still in the Eucharist and all that stuff. And then in time, the Lord brings them out. Second point that I want to make clear to you so that there's no confusion is that the partnership that we are forbidden to engage in is ministry specific. If a Roman Catholic person comments on politics and speaks truth, you don't have to pretend like everything that they said wasn't true because they're Roman Catholic. Okay, John Calvin has a quote, and I can't remember it exactly, but the nuts and bolts are, we can recognize truth as it's spoken by even unbelievers if it's in accord with natural revelation that they have received as image bearers of his and even uh, special revelation even if they understand aspects of the gospel though they are not regenerate themselves if they say things consistent with that it is okay to recognize that of course we also vote in a block with them generally that is considered a partnership that's not the kind of partnership that we're talking about here i don't really consider that a partnership but this is to help fill in the blanks for you so that you understand but, because perhaps no organization has murdered more souls than them, 
over the course of the centuries, we as heirs of apostolic and reformation doctrine, which are one and the same, are not to be bound together with Roman Catholicism for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness or what harmony has Christ with Belial or what is a believer in common with an unbeliever or what our agreement has the temple of God with idols for we are the temple of the living God just as God said I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people therefore come out from their midst and be separate says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. But they share our same sexual ethic. So did the Pharisees. But they are Trinitarians. So is Satan. I mean, I couldn't imagine how he couldn't be, having seen all that he has seen. So, brothers and sisters, we are Protestants still because half a millennia later we are still protesting the damning lies of the Roman Catholic Church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us grace as we resist the predations of Satan's church. Help us to honor your Son Help us to honor the work that he has performed on earth for the last 2,000 years. Help us to honor our spiritual forefathers who were the reformers and those who took that mantle from them down through the centuries later. Help us to deliver the faith that has been delivered to us to the next generation. And help us to understand the world may be collapsing, but the most important thing is to preserve the message by which men are saved eternally. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Illyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.